Okay, good evening everyone. Tonight we discuss the Jews and the procurators. So, last week we left off with the death, which I said was probably by poisoning, of Agrippa I, the last Judean king of, the last Jewish king of Judea, in the year 44. The last Jewish king of Judea. Well, upon his death, there was the possibility for the Roman emperor, at that time Claudius, to appoint another member of the Herodian family to be king of Judea, have a Jewish king of Judea. But he chose not to do that. Instead, the province became part of the, the, the region became part of the, the, the Roman province of Syria under the direct rule of a procurator of equestrian, equestrian rank who reports back to the emperor, but under the overall supervision of the governor of Syria. And there would not be a Herodian on the throne. Reason being, well, a number of reasons, but one of the primary ones is that the heir apparent, Agrippa II, was still a young man. In the year 44, he was 17 years old, not yet ready to take the reins of a, a kingdom. Now, he had grown up in Rome and was a favorite of the Roman administration, but still a young man, so not going to be invested with great authority. In the year 50, when the fellow was now by now 23 years old, Claudius gave Agrippa II the kingdom which had previously belonged to his uncle, Herod of Chalcis. Chalcis is up in the north near Aleppo, in Syria, really totally removed from the region of Judea. Uh, but because this fellow was uh, part of a vassal f- uh, family, the Herodian family, uh, he was given a, a minor kingdom in Lebanon, Syria. But in addition to being the king of Chalcis, he also was given the right to oversee the temple and appoint the high priests. So he wasn't king of Judea, but he had like a little lapidotere in, in Jerusalem from which he could oversee the temple and make sure that the ecclesiastical authorities were the ones he approved of. Uh, in this respect, he inherited that uh, prerogative from his uncle, Herod of Chalcis, who had been the, the, the um, overseer of the temple and the one who appointed high priests after the death of Agrippa I. So from 44 to 48, you had the brother, uh, the uncle of Agrippa II, and now you have Agrippa II in charge of the temple. In 53, he received additional provinces, Bathania, Trachonitis, Golanitis, which are regions near the Golan Heights, closer to Eretz Yisrael, but still not regions with uh, significant Jewish population. So he's, the, uh, he's a Hellenistic potentate over a Gentile uh, constituency, very few Jews. But in 55, with Claudius now dead and Nero in control, Nero gave Agrippa II control over Tiberius and its suburbs. Now, Tiberius was a mixed city, but of significant Jewish population. We're talking about the heart of the Jewish Galilee. So now you have Agrippa II in control of uh, his religious kinsmen. The question, of course, is, was Agrippa II a religious Jew? Regarding his father, we had a long discussion whether he was a religious Jew. And we came to the conclusion that although he was a a wild socialite (laughs) early in his life, later in his life he was a pious observer of the commandments, at least in the presence of fellow Jews. Whether he was sincere about it or was politically motivated, no one can ever know because we can't get into his mind years after his death. But he 
even when he was a pious Jew, was still sponsoring pagan activities in regions beyond the Jewish areas. As for his son Agrippa II, you could say basically the same thing. He would pay for uh, Hellenistic activities in the, in the non-Jewish regions, and he tried to cover his tracks by being somewhat pious in the presence of fellow Jews and asking religious questions to the religious authorities. So, for example, there's one source in the Talmud that... Um, is a, uh, um, that mentions Agrippa and is not, a, is not his father but rather the son Agrippa II. Actually, it's a Medrash Tanchuma. Shal Agrippa Samelach at Rabbi Eliezer. So Agrippa asked Rabbi Eliezer. The fact that we're dealing with Rabbi Eliezer means it had to be Agrippa II and not Agrippa I because Agrippa I died in 44 and Rabbi Eliezer was born in the year 50. So they never crossed paths. But Agrippa II, who dies around the year 90-something, would have easily crossed paths with Rabbi Eliezer. Uh, assuming he had interactions with the rabbis. Okay, so he asked Rabbi Eliezer a question. He said, Since God loves circumcision, the covenant of the flesh, why was it not recorded in the Ten Commandments? So Rabbi Eliezer responded, The matter of Brit Milah was recorded even before the Ten Commandments. As it says in Exodus 19, in the preamble to the Ten Commandments, And behold, if you hearken to my commandments and safeguard my covenant, and quotes a few other verses from Jeremiah and other books, to prove that the circumcision covenant predates and is even more important than Aseret Hadibrot. What are we to make of this interaction between Agrippa and Rebbe Lezer about circumcision? What are we to make of this? Who doubted the importance of circumcision? Which religious group doubted the importance of circumcision? Christians, right. So are we to say that uh, Agrippa was borrowing the Christian theological arguments uh, in having polemical debates with Rabbi Eliezer? Maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say, but it's got to be in the 70s or 80s, or maybe early 90s. Rabbi Lezer was relatively young, early in his career. And when was Agrippa II born? Agrippa was born in 27 and died in probably in 94. And Jesus died in the 33. 33. Yeah, he was born four years before Christ. So. <laughs> it was. I know. I know. It's true. It's true. Okay. <coughs> so. Which Rabbi Eliezer Hagadol? Ben Horkinus. Okay. Well, um, oh, when didn't Christianity really come to the fore within the 50, 70 years later that the that that the contemporaneous really didn't register? Itself? There was a church in Jerusalem as early as the the forties. That was his brother. That was James. James, but there were but there were there was a following. There was a following already in the forties and fifties. Substantial by the year seventy. Okay, so how do we know he was circumcised? Uh, let us assume that he was, because his father, as an observer of the commandments, would not have allowed his son to be uncircumcised upon birth. Um, but, in, in what areas was Agrippa II not especially religious? He minted coins that had the image of the emperor on it. Whether that emperor was Claudius that emperor was Nero, or Vespasian, or Titus, uh, or uh, whoever it might have been. Do you claim that's the Malthus? 
Yes, we've been through this before. You could always make uh, uh, excuses for uh, you could always make excuses for doing things that that uh, earn you the favor of the of the king of the emperor. But the Pietists frowned upon the the uh, minting of coins with, with human images, and he did it anyway. But he did it in the regions which were not especially Jewish. Now, why did the Jews have problems with him? Well. They didn't like the way that he flippantly appointed and deposed high priests. What is the basic rule of thumb when it comes to uh, the tenure of a Kohen Gadol? Death. Death. It says in the Torah, Ad Mota Kohen HaGadol, in reference to those who go to Ir Miklat, the city of refuge. How long must they stay there? Until the death of the high priest. That you have a changeover of administration because the old man passed away. Not because he was kicked out of office and sent packing, but yet, under uh, Roman rule and under Herodian uh, rule, uh, temple administration, you could be appointed and kicked out of office for no especially good reason. And that was uh, making a mockery out of a very sacred institution in Judaism, much to the chagrin and the dismay of the Jews, the pietists. Uh, now, he tried to oversee the happenings in the temple courtyard from a perch in his palace high above the temple mount. So, in the upper city, looking down upon the temple mount, into the courtyard, he wanted to know what was going on. Does it really matter to him whether the shechita for the tamid shel shachar was done exactly right? No, that's not what his concern is. He's not worried about the minutia of the avodah, that it was done kehilchata, according to the law. He's more concerned that there not be any political fomenting going on in the temple courtyard because it was not only a center of religious activity, it was also a center of rebellion. Whenever there was going to be some kind of uh, action against the, 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 the reigning authorities, the temple was a stronghold for the nationalists. So he wants to be able to see what's going on from a perch high above. What do the uh, Kohanim do? They erect a, a, a high wall uh, on the western side of the Temple Mount uh, in the courtyard to block the view of this uh, Agrippa II, who is not the king of Judea, he's the king of some northern regions, but has under Roman authority uh, the right to impose his will over the Temple. So, uh, That's not related to the western wall. Okay. No, 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 no. This was in the Azara as opposed to our, the western wall we have today, which was a, was a retaining wall of the, of the Harabite. Okay. You're right. It would raise more suspicion, but they like their privacy. The Gemara actually mentions this point. The, Gem- the Gemara, well, we're going to see there was a lawsuit. It goes to the emperor for, uh, for, for adjudication. But even in the Gemara, in the Gemara in Megillah Daf Yud, it talks about how you can have the Mizbeach without the Kla'im, the, the outer curtains. Um, so why were, they, why were they built? Mishum Tzina, uh, for, uh, for, for modesty. Uh, the, the Kohanim wanted to have their privacy when they did the service. They didn't want onlookers uh, peeping into their activities, let, let alone uh, some uh, heretical king. Yeah. So, now, th- there was a lawsuit here. It goes to Nero for a ruling, and Nero ruled in favor of the priest that they could allow the, law, the, the wall to remain standing, and that uh, even though Agrippus's view was blocked, too bad. Too bad. Which goes to show you that even though Agrippa was um, uh, on very close terms with the administration back in Rome, he nonetheless could not guarantee victory in his disputes. 
Sometimes he lost. Okay, but he got his revenge. He got revenge against the Kohanim by shifting some of the priestly prerogatives to the Levim, contrary to Torah law, that certain matnot kehuna, Levitical gifts, which are supposed to go to the Bnei Aharon, the sons of Aaron only, and not to your average Levi, were illegitimately, and contrary to the law, shifted over to the Levim. Now, to have a violation of ceremonial law being imposed by this, uh, this monarch, that's very, very bad and could lead to an outbreak of violence. Um, now, it, this, this incident showed that although historically the priestly aristocracy tried to cozy up to Roman and vassal rule, sometimes the priestly leadership was willing to side with the nationalists and viewed the Herodians as no different from the Romans. So, yes, the, 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 the elite Kohanim typically were traitors, and they, they kissed up to whoever was in control, even if whoever was in control might have been vicious anti-Semites. But sometimes that didn't work out that way. And they sided with the Kanaim, the, uh, the zealous nationalists, against the family of Herod, the Agrippas, because they viewed them as being no better, no different, no better, from an outright uh, pagan rule from, uh, from the Italian peninsula. Okay. Another thing that Agrippa did that bothered people, he spent large sums of money beautifying the urban areas. Yes, he spent money on Jerusalem, which of course the Jews liked, but he also spent a lot of money on Beirut, which uh, they didn't like. Um, and he also told the Jews, uh, so-called Greeks, Syrian Greeks, not, uh, it was not a Jewish area at all. The Phoenicians, they were long gone by that point? Uh, I mean, there are descendants of the Phoenicians, but it's, uh, it, was a, it was a Hellenistic polis. But the money <coughs> was taxed from, from his, his uh, control up in Lebanon, though. Was the okay, yes, but when you have a Jew by religion, if, if not by ethnicity, who has uh, an important position controlling the, 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 the temple to the God in Jerusalem, and that person is funding institutions, uh, Hellenistic and, and, and pagan institutions in another city, in another province, that's going to annoy and offend uh, traditional Jews. Even if the monies are not Judean tax money. Even if so. Okay, now, the, the worst thing that Agrippus did, the absolute worst thing, was not... Uh, something you could put your finger on. It wasn't something of substance. It was a political position of his. He told the Jews to come to terms with the rule of the procurators, especially Florus. Florus was one of the last procurators in the 60s who was especially bad and corrupt and offensive from a Jewish point of view. So the fact that Agrippa could tell Jews, you have to make your peace with uh, a form of government that is so horrible and contrary to Jewish values and Jewish interests, well, then what are you worth, Agrippa? It's going to be time for you to leave. And um, what did the Jews do? In the year 66, when the war began, they expelled him and his sister um, from the city, and he had to go back to his kingdom up north. That he, he had to leave his fancy apartment overlooking the Temple Mount uh, and go uh, away. And they did him a favor, you're right, in the sense that if he had stayed around, he might have gotten killed. So it, was, it protected his life. Um, yet it shows the extent to which they hated him, that here he's a Jew, but being told, 
when it comes down to fighting for our existence, you're not one of us. Get out. We don't want you. When he said that, No, no, the war was about to begin, and it started with, with, with the Jews instigated the war, arguably. Okay. Okay, yes, we know the name of the sister. Her name was Berenice. And uh, the fact that he was expelled together with his sister should tell you something peculiar. He never married. He never had children. Incestuous relationship, yes. So let's get to the, the gory details here. Um, now, what happened was... Uh, <laughs> it's politically relevant, actually. It's not just an affair. Okay. Um, uh, after, she was a full sister. A- Agrippa II supported the Romans during the Great War, and he, he was rewarded with, uh, for his loyalty with additional territories largely devoid of Jews. So his kingdom even grew be- after the year 70 because he was on the side that won. All right? Uh, he went to Rome in 70 to celebrate the great victory and was treated as a VIP with great honors because he had sided on the right team. He ruled over some Jewish regions of the Galilee until the year 86, and then he died without heirs around the year 92 or 93. And his kingdom was then incorporated into Syria, and there were no more Herodians. The Herodian dynasty comes to an end. Now, he caused a big scandal by supposedly having an intimate relationship with his sister. Uh, Berenice was regarded as one of the most beautiful women in the world, and she had three failed marriages, three short-lived marriages, one of her, her first husband will mention soon enough because he's related to one of the procurators. Um, and she had a long-standing affair with Titus. The, uh, the, the interesting thing about that is she was older than Titus by a few years. Um, and Titus went on to become the emperor in the year 79 after the death of his father Vespasian. He only had a short reign. He was, he was emperor for two years, 79 to 81. He died of some unexplained cause, possibly a brain tumor, although according to the Talmud, a fly went up his nose and went into his brain and it exploded and a bird came out. Okay, so same thing. He had some kind of brain issue. Um, He never married Berenice because to marry a Jew, a Jewess, would have been uh, unacceptable. Unacceptable. It's the Arch of Titus that's named after him. Okay, so you can't marry a Jew. Intermarriage is bad, but we shall see that as horrible as intermarriage is, there was an infamous case of it involving one of the procurators, which in about 15 minutes we'll get to his, uh, his identity and why that was a rare example because there was no bris, no bris, a shanda, no bris for the, for the goy who marries the Jew. Okay, now... Let's go to the procurators. There were seven procurators between the year 44 and 66. Almost all of them were incompetent. And they were looking to enrich themselves and defend, sometimes intentionally, the religious sensitivities of the Jews. The first one was Cuspius Fetus, from the year 44 to 46. He was relatively moderate. Actually wasn't uh, intentionally wicked or vicious. He just wasn't all that uh, successful in his, in his tenure. In his time, we have the, another example of a messianic apocalyptic outbreak, like Jesus, uh, except this one was even much more popular. And I'll quote to you exactly what Josephus tells us about. It came to pass, while Cuspius Fetus was procurator of Judea, that a certain charlatan, whose name was Theodos, 
persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him to the. Uh, for, for he told them that he was a prophet and that he would, by his own command, divide the river Jordan and afford them an easy passage over it. Many were deluded by his words. However, Fadus did not permit them to take any advantage of his wild attempt, but sent a troop of horsemen against them. After falling upon them unexpectedly, they slew many of them and took many of them alive. They also took Theodos alive, cut off his head, and carried it to Jerusalem. So what happened? This is one of several messianic figures who claims prophecy and uh, wants to lead people into this utopian end-of-days scenario. What was he trying to do? Cross the Jordan River um, by splitting the sea. Now, this is a conflating of several different stories, though, of course, because Moses split the sea, the Yam Suf, not the Yarden. Who split the Yarden? Yahushua. And it wasn't as dry as the Yam Suf. They, they went in, it was a little wet, it was a little muddy, as opposed to the Yam Suf, which was Harava. Okay, dry, dry shod. Right, now, uh, it says that many people followed him. He attracted a large following. Some of the other messianic figures had no following because people recognized that they were insane. Why did anyone follow this fellow? I don't know. Maybe he was especially charismatic, convincing orator, but there was enough of a following. Uh, so tough times will lead people to believe even the craziest of theories. But um, there, was a, there must have been enough of a following that it, it was necessary for the Roman administration to attack violently a large crowd of people. Could have had a thousand people, you're right. So if he had five guys, if he had a million of guys who were crazy, the, Ro- uh, the Roman procurator would not have needed to send a legion to attack them and kill them. It must have been a very large audience. Okay. And the, uh, the ringleader has his head cut off and carried to Jerusalem, uh, displayed for everyone to know, you don't do this. You don't cause trouble. You don't, don't be a false messiah. By the way, when the Gemara says that prophecy was given over to crazy people and to children, uh, there's a reason why the Gemara says that. This is a reaction of the proto-rabbis to the fact that you have people claiming prophetic status who were in fact nuts. All right. But that was also a divine one because they said prophecy had stopped. Right. Okay. So it's it's an interesting question. When did normative Judaism recognize the end of the prophetic era? We now, with rabbinic literature in front of us, can open up the books and say that, see that it says in the Gemara that prophecy ended with Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. But I wonder, as an historical matter, when it became accepted that there was no more prophecy. It definitely wasn't It probably was considerably earlier. No, no, no. I think it was earlier, before Yashka, before the first century common era. I think it was probably in around Maccabean times. Um... But I don't know that for sure. It's an interesting line for, for, for future research. So, in any event, if there's an outbreak, messianic outbreak, Roman soldiers are going to crush it. Now we go to the next procurator. This is probably the most interesting of them all, because he was a Jew. He was a Jew by birth. Tiberius Julius Alexander, from 46 to, to 48. Julius is a Jewish name, Yoel, yeah. So, Rabbi Yoel. So, Tiberius, Okay, so Tiberius Julius Alexander 
is named after Tiberius, the emperor. Tiberius was emperor from 14 to the year uh, 37, after Augustus, before Caligula. And um, who was this person? He was the son of Alexander the Alabak. Alexander the Alabak was a customs official in Alexandria, in Egypt, held an official government post, and Alexander's brother was Philo and Alexandroni, Philo of Alexandria, the great Jewish philosopher, the, the greatest Hellenistic Jewish philosopher of all time, whose works are still studied to this day, whose interpretations of the Torah are very important in the history of, uh, of biblical interpretation. So this Tiberius Julius Alexander is the nephew of Philo, the son of Alexander. Now, Tiberius's father was a Roman citizen, and so Tiberius, at birth, inherited that designation as a citizen, which was a rarity for Egyptian Jews. He, for, uh, he, he uh, was willing to forsake his ethnic and religious background to advance his career in politics and in the military. Josephus chastised him for this um, abandoning of his religious heritage. Now, of, of all people to attack someone for being a turncoat, a Benedict Donald, Josephus isn't exactly a, a model citizen. I mean, he, he gave up the Galilee and switched teams. He was a disgrace from a national point of view. But well, that's right, a national From a national point of view. But from a religious point of view, Josephus always maintained, at least in his, in his writings and his claims about himself, that he was a religious Jew. This Tiberius Julius Alexander regarded himself, so we think, as a Gentile, as a pagan. He, he, said he was no longer a Jew by, uh, by nationality or by religion. Okay? Huh? No, but his father was, was a religious man. His father and his uncle were, were, were upstanding leading Jews of Alexandria. No, his mother was a Jew. His mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is a full-fledged Jew who becomes a mishumud. He's an outright mishumud, okay. And he does terrible things to the Jews. We'll see. Now, his brother, uh, the other son of uh, of Alexander the Alabak and the other nephew of Philo, was Marcus. Marcus was Berenice's first husband. So we get back to the to the the, the sister of Agrippa, so the incestuous sister. So her first husband was Marcus. They got married when she was 13 or 14. He died three years later. So she was a widow at 17. She was a widow a second time over at 25. And it was a Grusha by the time she was 30. So she was had many, many marriages. And plus the brother, plus Titus. She, she saw it all. Okay. Now, the family was very close to the Herodians. After all, Berenice was married to one of them. Um, and... Claudius was also close to this family, Philo's family. So Tiberius has friends in the administration in Jerusalem and friends in Rome. With friends in high places, you can be appointed to a very prominent position. Well, uh, Tiberius was selected by Fetus in the year 46 on the theory that a Jew by birth would be more acceptable to the native population. It's like saying Bernie Sanders would be more acceptable than Ted Cruz because he was born a Jew. Uh, uh, so, 
it's a it's a it's a theory. It's a theory that oh, you know, he'll be he'll be more acceptable. He'll be better. We won't have as much of an outburst because he's a kinsman. But that, of course, is a foolish idea, because if a Jew has forsaken his identity, he'll be hated much more so than a, 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 a Philo-Semitic Gentile. All right. What did uh, Tiberius do during his tenure? He executed James and Simon, who were the sons of Judas the Galilean, the leaders of the Zealot cause. I, I, I said last time we would speak about the Zealots today. We probably won't. We'll probably save it for next week. But um, there was a, a royal family of Kanaim, of Zealots, beginning with, with Hezekiah, Chizkiah, who had his encounter with Herod back in 45 BCE, who was executed. And then you had Judas the Galilean, who was in the days of Archelaus. And now you have his sons, Simon and James, who are executed by Tiberius. Huh? They, they were leaders of bandit groups in the Galilee who would uh, basically be highwaymen, not for the sake of their own material uh, enrichment, but to attack the assimilated, the, the, the Romanophiles, and to build up the arsenal, the weapons cache of, uh, of the nationalist Jews. <coughs> Terrorists, basically. So, now, Tiberius helped Judea cope with famine in the year 47. And he was actually good at it. He imported grain from Egypt and from other places. So although he was not a fan of, of Judaism as a religion, he tried to be a competent administrator doing his job the way he knew he should. If, you don't, if the people starve, it's a big problem. Now, after he was uh, removed from office, and it's unclear why he was removed in 48, but he moved on in his career, he was appointed by Nero as the prefect of Egypt in the year 66. For someone who was born a Jew, that was the highest possible position they could ever hope to achieve in the Roman administration, the prefect of Egypt. That's a big deal. And uh, in the year 67, there was a major outbreak of violence between Alexandrian Jewry and the so-called Greek population of Alexandria. This was a long, simmering machlokus dating back almost to the days of Alexander himself and the founding of the city, one that was never fully resolved, um, but the Jews suffered uh, the, the brunt of the devastation. And um, the reason for this particular outburst was, since the war broke out in Judea in 66, there was an assumption that the Jews of the diaspora were well-wishers of the Jews of, of Judea and would uh, support a successful rebellion. And so every Jew all around the Roman Empire was seen as a possible uh, suspect as conspiring against the administration. It's like putting the Japanese in camps. Like putting the Japanese in internment camps in 1942. Same thing. So the, uh, the rest of the Alexandrian population takes this as an opportune moment to attack Jewry. And uh, uh, Tiberius basically supports the Greeks in this... Uh, pogrom, and many Jews die. So his own community, the community in which he grew up in, was now under his administration. He was the prefect of Egypt. He lets them suffer horrible devastation because he just he doesn't identify with them anymore. He identifies as a Roman, as, a, as, a, as an administrator. Uh, there you go. Okay. Now, what happened was in, in, in 69, there was the year of the three emperors. One after another, you have emperors who 
ascend the throne and then die because nobody can hold power too long. Vespasian... Huh? Uh, right, like, like the Soviet Union between 82 and 85 before Gorbachev took over. But didn't they have to one after Vespasian? There was there was there was uh, Galba and uh, and uh, and Otho um, before Vespasian, so Vespasian was a contender for the position as he is leading the Roman forces in Judea besieging Jerusalem. The war against the Jews is is winding down. Uh, most of the countryside has been conquered. Jerusalem is a holding out it has to be besieged for a lengthy period of time. And Vespasian has an opportunity to declare himself the emperor. His army wants to put him up to the top position. Well, he can only uh, achieve that goal if he has the support of other of leadership in other provinces. And the support of Julius Tiberius Alexander, who was prefect of Egypt, would be critical to Vespasian uh, comfortably assuming the throne and not have to duke it out with other contenders and possibly get killed. What does Tiberius uh, Julius Alexander do? He supports Vespasian. And that was the turning point. So here you have a, a, a Meshuma Jew running the show in Egypt, who is the kingmaker, literally, in making Vespasian the emperor. And having done so, Vespasian goes to Rome, leaves Judea, and puts the siege in the hands of his son Titus. Tiberius now becomes the second in command, the chief of staff, to Titus. He goes to Jerusalem. So now the Meshuma Jew is putting a siege around Jerusalem. How do you like that? Josephus, all right, he was bad enough. He gave up the Galilee without a fight and caused the other guys to, to, to cut their, their throats. And then he, you know, uh, like a scoundrel, was able to make it out of the cave alive at Yotvata. But that's, that's, that's bad, but it's not as bad as a Jew besieging Jerusalem. Okay, um, there's, a, there's a 20th century equivalent of that. In um, you ever hear of Abdullah Schleifer, Mark Schleifer? He was an American Jew converted to Islam and was one of the uh, the leading um, scholars on the Temple Mount b- before June of '67, and complained bitterly about the Israeli takeover and, and wrote articles in the Western media uh, saying how the Jews were wrong to to to, uh, to wipe out the Maghrabi quarter and and so on and so forth. He's another one of these guys who who's mishumed who 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 fights against Jewish interests in Jerusalem. Okay, so according to the story as it is recorded in Josephus and in other records there was a, a, a famous meeting of the general staff of Titus as the temple mount was being conquered the question being what to do with the temple itself should it be destroyed or should it be allowed to stand according to the records that, as it is preserved Tiberius Julius Alexander voted in, in what way? favor of destruction no, supposedly he voted to keep the temple uh, uh, intact. 50-50, you got it wrong. Supposedly he voted, don't destroy the temple. So the one mitzvah he did was he, he voted not to destroy the temple. But what in fact happened was that someone threw a Molotov cocktail, whatever it was, and it burned down. And so even though the, 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 um, the meeting of Titus' staff voted one way, another thing happened. Okay. Uh, that incendiary device that is yeah. owned by our side or their side? Their side. Their side. 
And then Titus took all the collateral to Rome, right? Uh, what, what was that? The Titus took all the collection from the... The Caleb. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, he took whatever he could find. He took it with him, yeah. Okay. There was a wind that was blowing away from the temple, and then it just shifted. Right, right. Act of God. Act of God. Act of God. Okay. Does it show the That's in rabbinic literature only. Okay, so now we go to the next... Procurator number three in the, in the cavalcade of procurators, v- Ventidius Cubinus. He was in charge from forty-eight to fifty-two. Now Cubinus had it rough because in his time there were three or more very bad incidents that were not really his fault, and he tried his best to to ease the tensions. So the first incident happened around the year fifty. A Roman soldier. Um, exposed his rear end intentionally to the pilgrims on the Temple Mount on Passover. So he mooned them. Now... So... The fact that one soldier acted in an indecent fashion is not the fault of the head of government. It's not the fault of the procurator. But what happened was that the Jews threw stones at this soldier, and when you have an outbreak of rock-throwing on the Har Habayit, inevitably things are going to get completely out of control. So the army that was stationed at the base on the north of the Temple Mount uh, that, that legion attacked the pilgrims. Everybody runs away. There was a stampede. And according to probably an exaggerated number, I'm sure it's an exaggerated number, 30,000 people died. I can't believe it was 30,000. Although, listen, it, it, when, at Mecca, when you have these stampedes, when they have the Hajj, sometimes that number really do die uh, because they have a million people there, two million people. My guess is it was maybe a few thousand, but not 30,000. So, a, a sad moment but not one that really was uh, instigated by the, the, the leadership of, of the administration, of the, occupi- the occupying forces. It was a comedy of errors. One, thing, one bad thing led to another. Okay, another incident involved uh, bandit zealots robbing an imperial slave named Stephanus. This happened all the time, where bandit zealots would you know, lay weights to people on the highway steal all their stuff, and maybe hurt them, maybe not hurt them, but uh, take, because that's how they were able to feed themselves and pay the, 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 the terror group. You, you, you rob people on the road. So, the imperial slave was robbed. Cuminus ordered the surrounding villages to be pillaged. So, a very tough, uh, tough response. One, per, you know, one group of, of uh, outlaws commits a, a crime, and everybody has to pay the price. Is it fair? Not really, but sometimes uh, you know, lawlessness has to be put into check some way in a very, in a very heavy-handed way. So during this uh, pillaging, a Roman soldier tore up and burnt a Torah scroll. That's not nice. It's one thing to, to steal some pots and pans and dinars and, uh, and derricks and dollars but it's another thing to tear up a t- and burn a Torah scroll. Fearing revolt, because the Jewish religious sensibilities have been offended, Cuminus ordered that that soldier be executed. How do you like that? 
here a Roman governor, a Roman procurator, is executing a Roman soldier for the act of tearing up a Torah scroll. Even in our own religion wouldn't, wouldn't call for executing someone for doing that. I mean, we wouldn't give the guy an aliyah afterwards. There'd be no aliyah to be had. But uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't kill a guy for it. So here you see heavy-handed tactics against the Jews when necessary and against his own soldiery when necessary to keep the peace, to preserve order. By the way, I've mentioned this incident in the past. Extra, extra bonus points if you, if you know what I'm talking about. In what prior lecture did I mention this incident? It was in the series where we discussed the holidays. It was in a discussion of one of the fast days. No, close. Huh? No. Shiva Tammuz, 17 Tammuz, correct. Why? Because one of the five things that the Mishnah says uh, are the, serve as the basis for our fasting is Saraf Apostomos Torah. Apostomus burned the Torah. And we didn't know exactly what that refers to. There were p- several theories. The, the three leading theories about Saraf Apostomus at Torah were either, one, it referred to Antiochus Epiphanes, Apostomus being a bastardization of Epiphanes, when in the uh, year 167 he outlaws the study of Torah and confiscates and destroys, according to Book of Maccabees, many copies of the Torah doesn't say burn, but it says destroy. That's one theory. Another theory was that this referred to the executioner of Hananiah ben Shrajon, who takes his Sefer Torah, wraps up the person in the Sefer Torah, and burns him alive. Okay, the problem with that theory is it chronologically doesn't really work because it's too late in the game to have been one of the five theories of, of Shiva Sibetamuz. But another one is, it's referring to this episode of Cuminus, uh, and what was the name of the soldier who burned the Torah? Maybe his name was Apostomus. Who knows? We don't have it recorded in, in our literature, but maybe, maybe uh, the, the, the author of that passage of the Mishnah knew his name. So I, I mentioned this story back then as one of the theories about 17 Tavus. Okay. Now we have another story from the era of Cumanus. Uh, a Galilean Jew was killed by Samaritans on his way to Jerusalem. So these were not good Samaritans, these were bad Samaritans. Uh, they kill a Jew on his way to Yerushalayim. By the way, this was a real problem, you know. The, the, the rabbinic literature tells us that there are three regions of Eretz Yisrael, three regions of Eretz Yisrael that, are, that, are, that have Kedusha, holiness. One is Yehuda, one is the Galil, and one is Ever Hayardain. Judea, Galilee, and Transjordania. What's not included here? Shomron, Samaria. Why? Because it was never Jewish. Ever. Okay, tell it to the settlers today. It was never Jewish. It was Samaritan, whose relationship to Am Yisrael and to Judaism is a convoluted relationship. Complex. Not easy to explain in al Regalachat. Okay? First temple period, it was Malmlechet Yisrael, the northern tribes, who have been lost and re- regained to an extent. But the point is that from a Second Temple perspective, it wasn't Jewish. It was Shomroni, Kuti, Kuthian, Samaritan. And it didn't have the sacred character for purposes of Trumot and Maasrot or whatever other considerations require Kedushat Eretz Yisrael. 
So much so that if you wanted to transport the mechatat, the waters of the chatat, which is what? The ashes of the paraduma mixed with water uh, for the sprinkling purposes to purify you from corpse impurity. If you wanted to transport it from one region of the country to another, you couldn't. Because there was no way of getting from Judah to Galilee without going through Eretz Ha'amim, the land of the heathens. And Eretz Ha'amim is automatically impure by rabbinic decree. So you couldn't get ashes of the red heifer legitimately to the, to the Galilee. Because there's this, this gap. Okay? And that's a dangerous area to traverse if you're a good loyal Jew and you're going through Samaritan villages. So, guy died. He was killed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the regions that are north of the Dead Sea and south of like Beit Sha'an. So basically, uh, it was known as Perea in, 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 in the Roman administration, known as Aver Hayarden in rabbinic literature, and it was in between Nabatea to the south and the Decapolis, that's the area of ten cities, the Decapolis in the north. So t- roughly from Beit Sha'an to the, north, the, the northern tip of the Amamelach, and then go eastward. Okay. And there was a substantial Jewish population there. Substantial, until the 4th century of the Common Era, when we lose track of them, and then there are no Jews there until today. I mean, there are no Jews in Jordan, except the Israeli ambassador. So, uh, so what happened? The Samaritans kill a Jew. The Jews turn to the Romans for justice. We want justice. You know, Jewish lives matter. But they don't. Why? Because the Samaritans bribed Cumanus not to prosecute the offender. So the DA was corrupt. Uh, the Jews, led by Elazar ben Dinai, take revenge, extrajudicial revenge, by destroying several Samaritan villages and slaughtering the inhabitants. Now, Elazar ben Dinai was a tough cookie. If we go to rabbinic literature and we find out more about him, um, Mishnah Sota. Chapter 9, Mishnah 7. Mishra Rabu Harotzchanim, in the era when there were too many murderers, the number of murderers increased, Batla Egla Arufa. I think we mentioned this in the past, that the, the ceremony of the decapitated heifer, the Egla Arufa, which is a ceremony that you do when you find a dead body and you don't know who killed them along the road, so the, 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 nearest, uh, the elders of the nearest city have to wash their hands of any guilt and uh, lay their hands on the animal and say, oh, we didn't, we didn't, we, we didn't cause the guy's death and we're, we're clean. Okay? So they no longer do that ceremony because there's too much murder going on in Israel. Okay? Misheba Eliezer ben Dinai utechina ben Parisha hayanikra chazru likroto ben haratzchan When was this uh, uh, decision to, ch- to uh, abolish a, a mitzvah, a ceremony of the Torah? In the days of Eliezer ben Dinai who was also known as the ben haratzchan, the son of murderers. Or techina ben Parisha and uh, be like Tachina and his falafel. I don't know, but that was his other name. Tachina ben Parisi, he had a pseudonym. Okay. Um, so, after uh, this uh, act of violent you know, <coughs> murder, the ranks of the zealots grew considerably. Cuminus was able to halt the revolt, but he was deposed by Claudius because too many too many episodes happened whereby a lot of people died. And if there's one thing the, uh, the emperor wants out of his procurator is at least preserve the peace. You don't have to be honest. 
You don't have to be uh, just and fair. You could be corrupt. You could line your pockets. But I don't want a lot of people dying. And if in too many episodes you have stampedes and mass slaughter, you're not getting the job done. You're out. Done. So he's replaced by Felix. Felix is a real character. He was a freed man. Last name wasn't Friedman. He was a freed man. Which means he had been a slave who was given emancipation. Under, uh, under Claudius, a lot of freed men achieved uh, significant politi- political positions. There was a certain uh, egalitarian spirit towards that, that era. Um, he was very good at putting down zealot activity in the countryside. And he even captured Elazar ben Dinai and sent him to, as prisoner to Rome, where we don't know what happened to Elazar ben Dinai. Presumably he was executed, probably in a really horrific fashion, but we don't know. Felix's administration, as good as it was in preventing uh, banditry by the zealots in the countryside, did not excel uh, in the cities, in the urban areas. In fact, his administration led to a rise in zealot popularity in the cities under, under Roman control. The Sicarii began operating in the urban centers. Why were they called Sicarii? Because of the dagger. They would come up to somebody in the middle of the marketplace, stab them, the guy would fall down, and the, 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 the uh, aggressor would have already mi- mixed into the crowd and nobody knew who he was. So you could, so you could, get, a, you could get away with an act of murder in a crowd, on a crowded subway platform, no one would know it was you. Okay? That was the Sicarii. We're talking in the 50s, in the, in the mid-50s, mid-50s moving on into the 60s. So, for the last 15 years of the temple's existence, the Sicarii were operating. Okay. And what was the nature, what was the, <coughs> these characters? Were yeah. Pure criminal? No, they had nationalistic motives. Okay, one of their victims was Yonatan Kohen Gadol, Jonathan the high priest. Who appointed the high priests? As I said, Agrippus II appointed the high priests. So, were these, were these characters, you know, good guys? Probably not. Uh, they were people who were of financial means who could uh, line the Grippus's pocket. So Jonathan the high priest was, ex- was killed by one of the Sicarii, but he w- it was done at the instigation of Felix. Uh, in in a, a matter of uh, strange political bedfellows, the Sicarii made a deal with the Roman procurator to oust the high priest, which goes to show you that sometimes the zealots cooperated with the Roman government against the interests of Jewish quislings. It would be like the equivalent of um, the British collaborating with Yitzhak uh, Shamir in 1947 to, 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 to kill a member of the Haganah. That, that would be the, the, the functional equivalent. But these things happen. Okay? Um, there were several false messiahs during Felix's ter- uh, term of office, including an Egyptian false messiah mentioned in the New Testament, the number of false messiahs was on the rise because as things became more and more desperate, uh, a greater number of people were willing to uh, regard themselves as the heroic savior. Um, Sometimes as a charlatan, as Josephus would have it, other times as a sincere believer in their own messiahship. So either they're, they're crazy or they're in it for material gain trying to dupe people. But we'll never know, I mean, who was who. Okay, the most interesting part of Felix's uh, term of office is who he married. He married Drusilla. Drusilla was the daughter of Agrippus I. Now, as the daughter of Agrippus I, who was a pious Jew, this daughter was a Jew, a Jewess, by religion. 
and for, to a certain extent by, national, by uh, ethnicity as well. But Felix married her without submitting to circumcision. It was an outright intermarriage and it dismayed everyone. Usually, usually, when you had uh, an aristocratic marriage between a member of the Hasmonean or the Herodian families and someone who was not born a Jew, whether they be a Nabataean or Idumean or whatever uh, prince or princess, well, let's talk about the men, the prince, they would at least have brismila, a perfunctory conversion, even if they never intended to live as a pious Jew. Uh, that was a coerced situation. She had no choice in the matter. But we're talking about... If she loses, she loses. Meaning she lost her husband as a result. In the case of Romans, yeah. as an embarrassment to them, Okay. So, when a, a Hasmonean or a Herodian would marry a, a prince or a VIP of an, a neighboring uh, Near Eastern uh, tribe... It wasn't such a busha, such an embarrassment for the man of that tribe to submit to circumcision. But for an ethnic Roman and a procurator at that to submit to circumcision, that couldn't happen. That wasn't going to happen. He remained a Gentile in body and spirit. He was a freed slave. Okay, So she married a non-Jew, outright intermarriage. No good, no good. Uh, now, late in his term, uh, the, in Felix's term, the lay and priestly aristocracy in Jerusalem began employing private armies for protection. goes to show you how bad the security situation was getting, with the Sikari running r- rampant and killing people left, left and right. You never know who was the next victim. So people had bodyguards, goons, hired goons, who were protecting them. But of course, if you have multiple people, or a lot of people each with their own private army, what's going to happen next? These private armies are going to be at, at each other's throats. Okay, Like you know, when the two rap stars go to the same nightclub, what happens? There's a shootout, because this guy's goons fight with that guy's goons. So in Jerusalem, you have people who are prominent individuals with the money to pay for bodyguards. The bodyguards are going to fight. Not good. Also, what, uh, what we find is that Felix can no longer do anything to fight the zealots he has to just throw up his hands and say, you're on your own. I'm going to run the, uh, the affairs out of Caesarea with some supervision in Jerusalem over the temple, but basically the countryside uh, is, is a danger zone, and I'm, I give up hope of controlling the zealots. The rich priests at this time plundered the, the Matnot Kuna from the poor priests, driving the latter into the arms of the zealots. That's a key point. The Kohanim are interested in um, the preservation of the temple, which means not antagonizing the Romans into destroying the temple. Okay, if your if your base of economic strength is the old ecclesiastical system, don't, so don't foul it up, don't get it destroyed. But what happens if your richer cousin? is now taking all the Levitical gifts, and you, the, the poor priest, have nothing to show for it. So you're willing then to take a chance on the Kanaim, on the zealots, on the nationalists, to expel the, the existing leadership, Roman and uh, priestly aristocracy, to bring back the good old days of honest Jewish rule. 
So Kohanim are being driven into the war camp because of the actions of fellow Kohanim who are thuggish, uh, you know, thieves, basically, taking what doesn't belong to them. Were the Essenes reactionary by moving away from uh, the town? So the Essenes had long ago moved away. Um, the beginning of the of Qumran sect is probably in the days of Jonathan the Maccabee, Jonathan the Hasmonean in the 150s or 140s BCE. But um, there is uh, a major uh, uh, argument in the scholarship. Who are the Baithusim, the Bathusians? Some say the Baithusians are Beit Essim, the Essenes, to be identified with the Qumran sect. Others say the Baitusim are synonymous with the Tzedukim, the Sadducees, which is in accordance with rabbinic literature, who say that Sadukim Baizus were the two students of Antigonus Soho, who said that there's no afterlife, and then they decided you know, to follow in his footsteps and reject the Olam Haba. Okay, but which one do I prefer? I tend to think the Baithusians were actually like the Sadducees, which means that they were players in this political battle. Um, and for the most part, the elite Sadducees favored Roman rule. Some of them, at the very tail end, in the 60s, will sour on Roman rule and decide to throw their lot in with the fighters. Um, but that, has, that hasn't happened yet. We're still in the 50s. So, in the year 60, Felix is deposed by Nero. What was the straw that broke the camel's back? Why was he deposed? Because the Jews and the Greeks in Caesarea fought over citizenship rights. This is a common theme for centuries. In mixed cities, new cities, where Jews and so-called Greeks, really really just Hellenistic peoples, um, are living together, who controls the city? Who has the right of citizenship? We saw this in Alexandria, we saw it last year. We talked about Antioch, Jews of Antioch, Caesarea. Okay, so it could be a 50-50 split. There could be a substantial number of Jews. We're talking about Eretz Israel after all. And the fact that uh, Felix had to submit this uh, controversy to Nero for adjudication bothered Nero, who wasn't looking to have to pick sides here. And so he said, he said he kicked Felix out of office. Okay, we'll stop now. Next week, we'll discuss the last three procurators, ending with Florus, who was the, the, one, the, the final one between 64 to 66. As we'll see, the situation gets progressively worse because the leadership is not really interested in governing effectively. They've given up hope on that. It's, it's too chaotic in the countryside. All the leadership can hope for is to get rich, get rich quick, because there's not a lot of time left. And then the real question will be, what offense against the Jewish nation or the Jewish religion will be the proximate cause for outright war? Everybody has their tipping point. So think about, if you were living then, what would be your tipping point? All right, see you next week.